we know that your spirit is here with us, that you've welcomed us into this place. So God, we pray that your spirit would continue to move among us, to open us up, to open our ears and our eyes, our hearts and our minds, so that we might hear a word from you. And God, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, God, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What makes the church the church? What makes the church the church? I was in Los Angeles this past week with a group of pastors. It's a learning group that I'm a part of, and we visited several places in Los Angeles that are doing unique, innovative ministry. One of those places was First United Methodist Church of Los Angeles. It's a church that was started about 165 years ago in a saloon of all places. And it was a church that grew up with the city of Los Angeles. It got bigger and bigger as Los Angeles got bigger and bigger. The first sanctuary they built was downtown. It was big and beautiful. There's a picture of it right there. But it only took 20 years to outgrow this building. So they bought an entire city block in downtown Los Angeles and built this massive church. It was the early 1900s. This building that you see on the screen cost $1 million to build. It was at that time the most expensive building built in Los Angeles. They had 6,000 members. There were 300 people in the choir. They were thriving. And then there was a depression and then a war and then people started moving to the suburbs and eventually they sold this massive, beautiful building to an oil company and they bought another building downtown, an office building that they converted into a church. But then there was another war and a recession and people kept leaving the city center and eventually they couldn't sustain this building anymore. Uh, and now this is the current home of First United Methodist Church in Los Angeles. It's the parking lot that that office building had been on. They tore down the office building. Now they worship under tents in the parking lot. And it's actually a lovely story about being reborn and purposely becoming a church without walls in order to welcome people who hadn't felt welcome. But what makes the church the church? Certainly not the building. It's not the people either. I mean, it is, but it isn't. Think about our church. We're going to celebrate our 75th anniversary next year. All the people who started Bel Air, United, Bel Air Methodist Church in Condit Elementary 74 years ago, well... Most of them have gone on to glory. And here we are today in a different place, different people. Still, though, still Bel Air United Methodist Church. Throughout our church's life, people have been born and they've died. They've come and they've gone. They've wandered in and drifted away. So what makes the church the church? Last week, we spent some time recalling the promises that God made to each of us when we were baptized. We read the words from the baptismal introduction in the United Methodist Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, through the sacrament of baptism, we are initiated into Christ's holy church. We are incorporated into God's mighty acts of salvation. We're given new birth through water and the Spirit. All this is God's gift offered to us without price. And there are three promises in there. First, you belong in God's family, the church. God has made a place for you in the church. Second, God is saving you and all of us from everything that's against God's purposes in the world. And third, you can always start fresh with God. We can build all the buildings we want to build. We can tear down all the buildings we want to tear down. But the first thing that makes the church the church is that it's created 
by God. We are a community that's called together by God who's promised us these things. We are a community also that believes certain things about the God who's called us together. I remember someone saying to me once, you know, the thing I love being about, uh, the thing I love about being a Methodist is that you can believe whatever you want to believe. And I just sat there and I thought, that's not true. You can't believe whatever you want to believe. Part of what makes us the church is that we believe particular things and don't believe other particular things. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And what we're, and what we're going to do is reclaim the essential beliefs of the Christian faith, those beliefs that make the church the church. And the scripture that will lead us there is the continuation of the story we began last week in Mark chapter 1. Jesus has been baptized. It's clear that he's the Messiah. He's the promised Savior. John the, baptized, John the Baptist, who had been baptizing all these people in the Jordan River, was getting a little too popular. And he'd begun to challenge the king directly. So King Herod had him arrested and thrown into prison. And that's where our story picks up. It's two verses from Mark chapter 1. They're printed in your bulletin. They're on the screen as well. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Two short verses that lead us to the heart of the Christian faith. Now, after John was arrested... The biblical writers usually aren't concerned with exact timing. So the thing Mark wants us to know is that John and Jesus were contemporaries, but they weren't competitors. The way Mark tells it, John's role, John's ministry is to announce Jesus' arrival. And John completes that ministry, and then Jesus begins his. Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. There's a really important phrase here, good news. Jesus, Jesus came proclaiming the good news of God. In Greek, the language that Mark's writing in, it's one word, euangelion. You means good, and gelion means news or announcement or message. It's where we get the word angel, messenger. Another way that good news, that phrase is sometimes translated is one word, gospel. So Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. He's talking about himself. In this moment, the kingdom of God has come near. In Jesus, the kingdom of God is with you. Repent and believe in the good news. Repent and believe in the gospel. What does that mean? Repent simply means to turn around, to turn your life around. Whatever else you were doing, stop doing that and start doing this. Whatever else you were believing, stop believing that and start believing in this, the gospel. And that's a pretty churchy word, isn't it? Gospel. You've likely heard it before, but my suspicion is that many of us, if we were asked, you know, what is the gospel anyway? we would, at best, stumble and stammer our way through an answer. The wonderful thing, though, about being part of the church is that we don't have to come up with our own answer because the church, through the centuries, has passed on to us a way to understand the gospel that's based on Scripture and on the time-tested wisdom of God's faithful people. 
We call it the Apostles' Creed. It starts like this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And this is the first of three sections in the creed. It's focused on God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. And that's also the shortest of the three sections. The creed continues, And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth, is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence, from there, he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Notice how much longer this section is than the first section. This is the second and central section of the creed. And that's on purpose because it's about Jesus. And Jesus has always stood at the center of the Christian faith. He is the one who makes the church the church. He's the one who makes the church the church. Without Jesus, there is no church. And you may be noticed that in telling us about Jesus, the creed follows a chronological order that's pretty easy to learn. He was conceived, born, suffered, was crucified, dead, buried, rose, ascended, is seated, shall come. This is on purpose so that each and every one of us can learn the story of Jesus in whom the kingdom of God has come near, so that each one of us can learn the story of Jesus, who himself is the good news and the one who saves. So we couldn't possibly say all there is to say about Jesus in one Sunday, but, but the creed highlights for us two things that we say when we say the creed. We call Jesus our Lord. What we mean when we call Jesus Lord is that he alone has the power to save. He alone is the one who makes the church the church. He alone is more important than anyone or anything else. Calling Christ Lord questions and limits every other allegiance we have. So when the early Christians declared, I believe in Jesus Christ our Lord, they were directly challenging the emperor. They were not making an innocuous statement, and neither are we. We're saying that our ultimate commitment is not to family, not to nation, not to church, but to him, to Jesus. We are rejecting every other absolute nationalism. We are rejecting every other unconditional allegiance. Otherwise, Jesus is not truly Lord. He's just one among many. We also say this about Jesus in the creed. On the third day, he rose again. These few words are the very heart of the Christian faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there's just not much to Christianity. It just becomes one philosophy among other philosophies. The teaching of, teachings of Jesus become wise sayings, but nothing more than that. Loving one's neighbor will still be good, but it's just a, a helpful practice. Going to church might keep the family together, but without the resurrection, the church cannot hold together. The center of what the creed says about Jesus is the resurrection, because the resurrection is the very heart of the gospel. God raised Jesus from the dead, and all who believe in him and all who call him Lord will experience that same victory over death. The third section of the creed is anchored by the Holy Spirit, whose ongoing presence we encounter in the church. It goes like this, I believe in the Holy Spirit 
the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Now, this feels a bit like a random list of things cobbled together at the end of the creed, but the whole creed is tied together by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The fact is that true faith in Jesus is always the work of the Holy Spirit. And the church is an essential part of the creed because in the church we experience faith. We experience the Spirit and put our faith into practice. We're drawn together in the community of God's people who live both as forgiven and forgiving people and who look forward with hope to everlasting life with God. In the end, the Apostles' Creed can't attempt to answer every question we have. It doesn't seek to clarify or to solve every mystery of faith, and it it doesn't name everything that matters for us as Christians. You maybe noticed that it said nothing about Scripture or about love, two incredibly important things that we'll talk about next week. All of that, though, is by design, because the goal of the Apostles' Creed is to clarify and to pass on the central beliefs that define Christianity, those things that make the church the church, the essentials of our faith that we reclaim every time we gather together. There's a story about a young Orthodox priest who told his spiritual advisor that he had difficulty with some of the statements in the creed. He wasn't sure that he fully believed some of those things, he said. His spiritual advisor said, well, recite it anyhow. The young man came back after a few days, again declaring that in good conscience, he could not, he could not claim to believe all the things that the creed said. The spiritual advisor recited anyhow, he said. This went on for weeks, and finally, exasperated and confused, the young priest asked his spiritual advisor, why do you insist that I repeat the creed when you know that there are phrases in it I don't believe? And the elderly advisor replied, because it is not your creed, it's the creed of the church. When you recite the creed, you're not declaring what you believe, you're declaring what the church believes. And when you say the creed, you are declaring yourself part of that church, no matter whether you've come to believe every point of doctrine yet or not. As United Methodists, we try to believe what the saints before us believed. Because any faith that is merely contemporary, any faith that's made up of what we have decided, is inevitably shallow based only on the thin foundation of of those who happen to be walking about right now. We know that we're not the first to walk the way of discipleship. We know that there is something more than us. There's, There's something more than what we think or what we want. We know that God's not left us to our own devices, that we as God's people are part of something much bigger than us. We're loved by someone much greater than we are. So in the church, when we say, I believe, we're mostly talking about history, affirming our membership in a community of God's people, saying, you know, the church has believed, and I'm on my way to believing too. So to close this morning, I'm going to invite you to stand as you're able. And because we are the church in this time and in this place, 
I invite you to reclaim what the church believes as we say the Apostles' Creed together. Would you join me? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen.